Welcome to part two of our series, Justification, Sanctification, and Glorification. Tonight's topic is sanctification. We will uh, start with a little bit of a recap of last week and then jump right in. So last week we talked about justification. Justification is a once-for-all declaration made by God about the believer at the onset of the Christian life, and it concerns our legal standing before God in His courtroom in heaven. That is, we are not guilty of our sin and we are righteous in His sight. Justification is not a process and it has nothing to do with a righteousness that is inside of you. Justification is based on a righteousness outside of you, what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness. And that, of course, is the righteousness of Jesus, which has been credited to your account and was credited in full to your account the moment you put your faith in him. It has nothing to do with your works. We are justified by faith alone. All of your sins credited to Jesus, all of his righteousness credited to you. And again, this is not a process. It is a binding declaration made once and for all by God in the courts of heaven. Pretty good summary. Uh, that said, the question arises, we know our justification is not based on our works, but we also know works are important in the Christian life. I believe the way Dr. Young talks about it is they are not meritorious, but they are necessary. Um, so how does all that fit? Well, that's where sanctification comes in. And you can't divorce one from the other. The justified will be sanctified. Those being sanctified have been justified. Now, that's not to say that sanctification is based on our works either. As we'll discuss, it is based solely on the grace of God, but it does include our works. And it's incredibly important to keep these doctrines distinct, but also to understand their relationship with one another. So whereas justification addresses our guilt before our holy God, sanctification addresses the power and dominion of sin in our life. Justification addresses the guilt we have because of our sin. Sanctification addresses the sin's power or lack thereof in, in the life of the believer. Lynn Hardison told me his old pastor used to say it this way, justification addresses the penalty of sin, sanctification addresses the power of sin, glorification addresses the presence of sin. I think that's pretty good. Now, actually, the Bible talks about sanctification in two different ways, so we're going to have to do the same. Now, the one we are most familiar with is what? Anyone? It is growing to be like Jesus, right? 
we're, our sanctification is our Christian growth. It is uh, growing throughout our lives to be like Jesus. And in that sense, our sanctification is still incomplete. We are not yet as we will be. And we can call that our progressive sanctification. It is the ongoing growth in holiness throughout the entire life of the Christian. And that's where we emphasize our works. There's an important place for good works in the Christian life, in our growth in godliness. But there's another way that the Scripture speaks about sanctification as having already been accomplished. And this refers to what we would call positional sanctification. So we have positional sanctification and progressive sanctification. Positional and progressive. Uh, Positional sanctification is not an ongoing thing like progressive sanctification. Like justification, positional sanctification is once and for all. The basic meaning of to sanctify is to set apart. So positional sanctification means we have been set apart by God as His holy people for His holy purposes. That's something that has already happened at the beginning of the Christian life, and it's a done deal. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10, and I want you to see both of these types of sanctification side by side. Hebrews chapter 10 and we will read verses 10 through 14. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 10. It says, And by that will, that is God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now notice there, you have the word sanctified twice, once in verse 10, once in verse 14, but it is used in two different ways. Verse 10 is referring to positional sanctification. It's already been done. Verse 14 refers to progressive sanctification. It is continuing to happen and is not yet complete. And we know this because it is the same Greek word, but it is used in different tenses. For those of you that like to nerd out in, in this way, we can do that for a minute. Um, well... Maybe. Here, by the way, I have one more seminary class, and it's a Greek class, and so you could pray for me, all right? <laughs> I just need to pass. Uh, this one is Hagias Minoi. This one is Hagiazzo Minus. Okay, hey, not bad. You think I'll make it? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's just the alphabet. There's, uh, 
There's a lot more to do. So that Hagios Minoi, the top one, positional sanctification, is the perfect passive, and it communicates an action that has already been done that has continuing relevance for the present. It is a completed action that has continuing relevance, and that is that we have already been sanctified. And then in verse 14, you have the present passive, which is a continuous action that is still being done. It is not yet complete. So again, we see it's the same word. It's used in two different ways. One of them mean it means it's done. You have been sanctified. The other means it's not yet complete. You are being sanctified. Now, positional sanctification, the fact that we're already sanctified, set apart by God as His holy people, is the side of sanctification that I think we know less about or that we think less about, but it is a prominent theme in the New Testament. Um, and we see it all over the place, not just in the word sanctified, but in, in different passages, like in Colossians 1. We were in the kingdom of darkness, but God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and He has brought us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. We had a change of position. We were not God's people, but we have been set apart as God's holy nation, a people for His own possession. 1 Peter 2.9 These pastors are talking about positional sanctification. Not an ongoing process, but something that God has already done in changing our eternal position. We were not His people. We are now His people. It's a done deal. It's irreversible. We have been set apart by our holy God as His holy people for His holy purposes. That does not mean our progressive sanctification is complete. In that sense, we are not yet fully sanctified. But in the positional sense, we are. We have been fully set apart by God as belonging to Him. And here's why it's important to understand both. The work of progressive sanctification, the work of our growth in godliness can be discouraging, can't it? Whether that's because of sin or suffering or whatever it may be. We, we don't grow as quickly or as completely as we would like. Our sin rears its ugly head and our enemy uses our failures to discourage us and to lie to us. You, you won't ever get beyond this. Maybe you're not even the real thing. One of the ways to fight the discouragements of your progressive sanctification is with the security of both your justification and your positional sanctification. So we say back, no, I'm not there yet, but God has declared me to be righteous in His sight and that is binding once and for all. No, I'm not there yet, but God has set me apart as one of His holy ones. And that has nothing to do with anything inside of me. That has to do with God and His sovereign grace and His sovereign purposes alone. He has set me apart unto Himself. 
And because he has set me apart positionally, I know that he will see to it that my progressive sanctification is completed in his time. We love the passage. He who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ. You know how I know? Because he set you apart as his holy one and he is committed to finishing the work of your progression so that it matches your position. That's good. And in light of that, we can talk about our progressive sanctification. So in justification, we were saved from sin's penalty. In sanctification, we are saved from sin's power. Uh, In sanctification, God not only saves us from the punishment for our sin, He sets us free from sin's tyranny, and He restores the damage that sin has done and will do in our lives. He heals and transforms and restores us back to His original design. It's like restoring an old car. I don't know the first thing about that, but some of you do. And I've had friends that have done it, and you want to restore a car. Well, first you've got to go buy it. You go buy it from a junkyard or whatever it is, somebody that's selling a, an old broke-down car. It needs a restoration in the body. It needs a restoration under the hood. It's rusted out. The engine doesn't run. But you get the engine running, and you get rid of the rust, and you get some new parts, and you apply some new paint, and over time the car is restored. And that's the same way it works for us. The Lord purchased us out of the junkyard of our sin. When He did so, we were not in working order. But He gave us His Holy Spirit. He brought us to new life. He gave us the ability to repent and believe in Jesus. He got the car running. And throughout our lives... He is working to restore all the breakdown that sin has created in our lives and that sin will create in our lives. And the amazing thing is that He gives us the ability to join Him in His work. Now, ultimately, sanctification is the work of God. It is only by and because of God's grace. But we have an active responsibility to participate in what He is doing. So He brought us to new life with the intention that we would live that life. Turn to Philippians 2 and we will see this uh, dynamic there. That all of salvation, including sanctification, is ultimately a work of God and that we have a responsibility to participate in what He is doing. Philippians 2 Verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Salvation is all grace, it's all gift, the forgiveness of our sins, the ability to repent and believe and grow in Christ. All of it is the work of God. 
but God works it into us so that we would work it out in our lives. Said God works in you both to will and to work. If he did not work it into you, you wouldn't even have the will to do it, much less be able to accomplish the work. When I taught on a Wednesday night earlier this year, which I certainly don't expect you to remember, but uh, we talked about the doctrine of total depravity, looking at the nature of mankind in sin versus the nature of mankind in Christ. Before the Lord brought us to new life, we didn't even have the ability to live a godly life. We were bound in our sin nature without the ability to seek God and live a holy life. But God set us apart as His holy ones. He brought us to new life. He gave us a new heart. He gave us His Holy Spirit. He transformed our nature, giving us new ability to honor Him and obey Him according to His commandments. There's that passage that we love in Ezekiel 36. You can go ahead and turn there. Uh, Ezekiel 36. And you know the passage about the heart of stone being replaced with the heart of flesh and being given God's Holy Spirit. And in verse 26 and the first part of 27, that's all about God's grace in giving that new heart and giving His Holy Spirit. It's a passage about being brought to new life in regeneration or being born again. And right on the heels of saying that He will give His people a new heart and give His people His Holy Spirit, the Lord tells us why He does that in verse 27 of Ezekiel 36. He says, I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and be careful to obey My rules. Now the whole preceding context to that is God is angry with His people Israel because they have not followed Him according to His commands. They have not glorified Him in the way that He would have been glorified had they obeyed Him. In fact, He says, you have profaned My name among the nations because they have continued in disobedience. But what He's getting at is, you have not had the ability. And so I'm going to do something inside of you to ensure that I will be glorified among the nations. I'm going to transform you from the inside out. I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to give you my spirit so that you will be able to follow me according to my commandments. The Lord recreated us in Christ and He gave us new abilities so that what we once could not do in our sin, we can now do in Christ. We can now walk in the ways of God being careful to obey His commandments. Uh, you know, last week, Mike Ledyard came up to me. He said, I'm surprised I didn't hear the word monergistic from you tonight. I said, well, that's a tough crowd, Mike, but I was saving it for this week. So uh, again, verse 26 in the, the first part of 27, God giving us a new heart, giving us his Holy Spirit. That is the work of regeneration. That is being born again. And that work is monergistic. Regeneration is monergistic. But then in verse 27, we have the passage about now we can obey Him according to His commands. 
And that is the path of sanctification. So we would say sanctification is synergistic. Mono means one, erg means work. It is the work of one. It is the work of God. God alone brings us to new life. Sin means with. Erg means work. God works it into us. We work it out. We work with God. We cooperate. It is synergistic in the way that we work out our sanctification. So regeneration, monergistic. Nothing to do with us. God brought us from death to life. Sanctification, synergistic. We cooperate with God's work in our hearts, in our lives. He works it in. We work it out. It's all a product of God's grace, and yet we have an active role to play in our salvation in sanctification. Maybe this is a helpful way to think about your sanctification. It's helpful to me. The Spirit is the vehicle. Without the Spirit, you're not going anywhere. He brings us to new life. He enables our repentance and faith. He enables us to believe in and follow Jesus. The Spirit is the vehicle. The gospel is the fuel. Again and again, we return to the good news of our right standing with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that fuels us onward, and we can't get enough of that message. The gospel is the fuel. The commands of God are the road we travel. They guide us along the path of growth in godliness. The Spirit's the vehicle, not going anywhere without Him. The Gospel's the fuel that drives us forward. The commands of God are the road that we're traveling. Now, that's not to say we're saved by law-keeping, but it is safe to say that the shape of sanctification is the law. It is what we are growing in conformity to, to God's Word. So think about it this way. How are disciples made? Jesus said, baptize them and teach them to obey all that I've commanded. So do you want to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, what does that look like? It looks like learning obedience to all that we've been commanded in God's word. And it's interesting because in our Romans 3 passage last week about justification, it was very clear that justification comes to us apart from the law of God. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. What this means is we are not saved by law keeping. And to that we should give a hearty amen. But the law of God is useful both in our justification and in our sanctification. I'm going to show you that here in just a minute. In, in Reformed theology, we make uh, the distinction between three different uses of God's law. That is... Three different ways that God's commandments are generally used in our lives and in society. So, three uses. I'm going to have to create some space here. Anybody know the first use? First is the civil use. That is, uh, the commands of God are useful in curbing the influence of evil in our society. The second is what's called the 
tutor or schoolmaster use. And the third is as a guide for the believer. Again, that's not to say that um, the laws are necessarily this one is for civil, this one is for tutor, this one is for a guide for the believer. It's just to say all of God's commandments are useful in these three different ways in our individual lives and in the larger society. Now, the, the civil use is not necessarily relevant to our discussion today, but again, it, it means that God's word, God's commands are useful in curbing the influence of evil in our society. And we've just seen this in our society with a Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. That does not happen apart from the influence of Christians. For 50 years, Christians have been arguing from God's word that all people are made in his image and therefore have a right to life. And that abortion is a murderous assault on the image of God in the womb. For 50 years, that has been a battle cry from the Christian church. And apart from the Christian influence of God's law in our society, that decision simply does not get made in the Supreme Court. If the Christians were silent, and God's Word was not unleashed into the larger society, there's no way that happens. So it's a great example of how the law of God has a civil use. It is used to curb the influence of evil in our society. The second use, the tutor or schoolmaster, means this. It means that the law is there to teach us about our sin. It is there to show us how short we fall of God's holy standard and to point us to Jesus who kept the law on our behalf. It shows us that we are not worthy and shows us to the one who is worthy. And that is how the law is useful in our justification. Because in our sin... We try to make ourselves right with God by being a good boy or being a good girl. We want to approach it with salvation by law-keeping. But when we see the law of God truly, and we see ourselves truly in light of the standard of God's Word, we understand a little bit about how short we have fallen. And in that, the Lord humbles us, but He also uses that to point us to the one who did not fall short. The one who came to fulfill the law on our behalf and, and die for our having fallen short of God's standard. So the second use is the law as schoolmaster or tutor. And the third use is the law as a guide for the believer. Now, this is what we've been saying. The law shows us the path of godliness. God's word, God's commandments provide the shape of our sanctification. The law of God is simply the nature and character of God in written form. And in our sanctification, we are growing more and more into his likeness. So it makes sense. His word shows us 
how we grow to be more like Him. And the second use of the law is still useful in our sanctification as well as our justification because as we seek to grow in conformity to God's standard, we still fall short, don't we? The law exposes our sin not only initially in bringing us to Christ, but it also, as we seek to live according to God's holy standard, it exposes our sin all the time. It shows us all the time that we continue to fall short of His glory, and it points us back to Jesus for refreshment in our salvation in Him. So what this boils down to then is that the way we walk in sanctification is in repentance and faith. The law exposes our sin and leads us away from sin in repentance, and it leads us onward in faith and obedience to Jesus. This is the language of Scripture as well. Turn to Colossians 3. And I'll read it quickly because we're needing to hustle. Colossians 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Go down to 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. You get the idea. Put off these things. Put to death these things. Put on these things. Turn away from these things. Pursue these things. The Puritans uh, spoke about this in terms of mortification and vivification. I'm not going to write it on the board because we have so many ifications. It's just going to be. But mortification is to kill sin. Vivification is to live to God. Um, and, and that's the two parts that we're talking about here. Now, we've talked a good bit about living to God and faith and obedience to His commands. Let's talk a little bit about mortification, about uh, how do we go about killing our sin? I have four things for you. Number one, see it. Number two, feel it. Number three, confess it and ask forgiveness related to that. And number four, get rid of it. Number one, how are we going to see it if we aren't regularly looking into the mirror of God's Word because we've just established that it is the law of God that exposes us and shows us just how short we fall. So the way to see our sin is to face the standard of God's Word over and over again, which not only shows us who He is, but shows us who we are in falling short of His glory. Number two, feel it. There is an appropriate level of shame for sin. Now, we live in a culture that's trying to erase all shame for all sin. Unless you just believe in absolute truth, then you should be ashamed of, of that, which is a cultural sin. It, now, shame is a good thing in the Christian life. 
Now, it's one thing to wallow in your shame and um, never get your mind back to Jesus, and I'm certainly not advocating for that, but we do need to feel it. It's a good thing to get a hint of just how wretched sin is. Shame over sin is not a bad thing. It is a help in teaching us about sin's wickedness. See it, feel it. Three, confess it. Confession is simply calling it what God calls it. So that means when we pop off and lash out in anger, whether it's someone in your home or work or wherever, the way to respond to that when the Lord helps me see it and feel it is to go to that person and ask, will you forgive me for my anger? Now that's far different than simply saying, I'm sorry. Or worse yet, coming back later and never addressing it. Or if you address it, blaming it on not feeling well or being tired or something else. Now, I am convinced that this is woefully underpracticed in our lives. And the only way to truly heal and grow beyond the brokenness that sin creates in our relationships is to practice confession and the asking of forgiveness. And of course, the granting of forgiveness. And then number four, get rid of it. Now, this is easier said than done, and rarely is it ever just a one-off, but we have to seek to kill our sin and walk away from it. We have to seek to make changes, sometimes drastic changes, to leave our sin behind. And it's awfully difficult to get rid of sometimes It's because it's well-established. It's deep-rooted, especially if it's been around a while. It's like digging up a holly bush. Those things are nightmares if you want to get rid of them. They're rock hard. They're deep-rooted. You dig them up, and then the next season, there's little sprouts of hollies coming up, and you have no idea where they're coming from. They're coming straight from hell is where they're coming from. <laughs> but those, But the truth is, those shoots are not that bad to deal with. When they pop up in your flower bed, you get a little spade and you can dig it up. But if you let it get established over a couple seasons, now you've got a full-blown holly to deal with again. And it's the same with our sin. We cannot let those little shoots get established. When the sinful thoughts or the sinful words or the sinful deeds pop up, they need to be dealt with in confession and sin, uh, confession of sin and, and repentance from sin. So what we often do is we try to domesticate it. We let it hang around the house. I don't have time to tell you about the snake, the lady with the snake. You know, she, she had a pet snake. She slept in the bed with it. Crazy people. But they uh, took it to the vet. Oh, checking out. Any, any strange behavior you need to know about? Yet the snake had been, instead of coiling up next to her and sleeping, it was stretching out next to her and laying next to her. And she's like, is that something? He said, yeah, she, the snake's sizing you up to see if it can eat you. Because that's what snakes do. And that's what sin does. We can't domesticate our sin and let it hang around the house or it will destroy us. And here's another thing. Sin will switch lanes on you. You let sin hang around over here and all of a sudden you've got all these sins over here and you're not sure how that got there. It's because sin is a wild beast living inside of you. It will run every direction and it hates you. And it hates when you try to tame it. It will switch lanes. And eventually it will get you if you give up the fight and if you let it sleep next to you. 
But the good news is this. Not only have we been freed from the penalty of our sin in justification, we have been freed from the power of our sin in sanctification. Jesus has saved you and He has set you free. God's Holy Spirit has been deposited in you and He has given you new ability to walk in repentance and faith according to His commandments for a lifetime. To continue to grow in godliness. Yes, that process is painful. It is often slow. It is sometimes discouraging. But with God, it is indeed doable. We haven't even talked about suffering. We're going to talk a little bit about suffering and sanctification next week en route to talking about glorification. But suffering is a part of our sanctification. And it is hard. But remember what we said before. You fight the difficulties of progressive sanctification with the security of both your justification and your positional sanctification. No, I'm not there yet. Yes, I'm growing slower than I had hoped to. Yes, I fell into that sin again that I hate and it hates me. But God has declared me to be righteous in His sight based on Jesus Christ alone. No, I'm not there yet, but He has set me apart as one of His holy ones. Not based on anything I've done, but on the sovereign choice and purposes of God. He has set me apart unto Himself as His own. And because He has done that positionally, He will see to it that I get there progressively. He who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ. And I know that because He has set you apart as His Holy One, and He is committed to finishing the work of your progression so that it matches your position. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, this is good news again, and we need it again. Lord, we're thankful for Your grace and mercy and the forgiveness of our sins. We're thankful that we have this glorious right standing with You based on Christ alone. And also that you've set us apart as your holy ones belonging to you and that you're committed to seeing to it that we grow into your likeness and image. Lord, we are not there yet. Teach us that it is okay to confess that freely. Teach us that that is the way you have designed us to grow. And let us rest in the provisions that you've made. Uh, Lord, help us to continue to fight our sin and kill it so it doesn't kill us, and to continue to pursue you in obedience and faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.